unashamedly, I'm going to show you something in just a minute. Uh, um, you know, I, before I became a grandparent, and I'm a very young grandparent, by the way, so I only have eight grandchildren. They're all under nine, so I've not been a grandfather very long. And uh, so if you can just take a look at that up there, that's our latest edition, number eight. Uh, he is Canadian, by the way. Uh, my son Aaron is a church planner in Montreal in Quebec, Canada. That's in the far northeast, way up up there. It was minus 26 windchill factor last Sunday morning. That's cold. And um, so Patty and I had not been introduced to uh, this young fellow. His, his name is Owen Taylor Boswell. He is 50% Canadian and 50% American, so I'm not sure what that makes him, so he has dual citizenship. And we had not met him yet, and so we had the opportunity to go meet him. He is six weeks old, I think, getting close to seven weeks old now. And so it was a joy to be able to be there and to hold him and to uh, watch my youngest, our youngest son become a father. Now, our youngest son is a very unique fellow, and many of you know him. He's the most gregarious, the the most loving, the most um, easygoing, the most friendly. He, he holds his brother and sister and sometimes his parents for a hug when he hasn't seen you in a long time to the point you have to say, this is getting uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he's one of those kind of guys. And so to see him with his son, I told him, I said, Aaron, you're going to have to stop kissing him in the mouth when he's 17, I promise you. So um, he is he's just a great dad, but it sort of reminds me as we begin our study today and we take a look at this newborn baby, we borrowed a, a sort of an excerpt out of a Christmas song, and the Christmas song, the excerpt that we uh, borrowed, this little excerpt said, a baby changes everything. How many of you know that song? A baby changes everything, and when our oldest son, Matthew, uh, who is equal to our youngest son, I know some of you think, I say that my youngest son's the best son. Actually, our oldest is also one of our best. We only have two. But anyway, our oldest son, Matthew, was the first to be a father in our family with a Cannon, and Cannon was, uh, Caden, I'm sorry, and Caden was the first, and I hate, well, he has a Caden and a Cannon, so, you know, anyway, so Caden was the first, and so we began sort of, sort of playing with him in that a baby changes everything, and parents have no idea what that means until you become a parent, right? They do not have a clue, and it's amazing to me how much they appreciate you as a parent when your children become parents, they finally realize and recognize what it means and what it costs because a baby changes everything, doesn't it? It is an endless ray of wiping, changing, burping, feeding, and endless sleepless nights that go on until they're 21. A baby changes everything. And having met him for the first time, not via Facebook or via, you know, the internet, uh, we saw him for the first time and were able to hold him. And being introduced to him personally has changed our lives because a baby changes everything. Well, as we begin our study this morning, I want to take that one step closer to what we're going to be talking about today. Jesus changes everything. When you meet Jesus Christ for the first time and you place your faith and trust in him as your personal savior and commit to his leadership, 
I guarantee you that transformational work of the Spirit of God will transcend every circumstance, every situation, every sin in your life, and you will never be the same. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. Everything. We began this study in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and he's headed toward a city called Capernaum. It's in the northwest northwest region of the Sea of Galilee. And as he's coming down the mountain, making his way there, we learn in Matthew 8 that he encounters a leper. And the leper approaches Christ and he says, if you will, you can heal me. Jesus said, I will, and he healed him. And that encounter transformed that man's life. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. As soon as he came into Capernaum, as he continued his journey, he has encountered on the city limits a centurion. And that centurion begs for a servant. His servant is ill. And he asks Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus agrees to go with him to heal his servant. But he says, no, no, Jesus, just simply say a word, and your word alone will heal him. And Jesus said, such faith in all of Israel I have yet to see. And he says the word, and as soon as he turns in faith, his servant is healed. Now, we talk about the man who is healed being transformed by Christ, but I'm convinced the centurion who met Jesus on that day put his faith in Christ. And because of that encounter with Christ on the outskirts of Capernaum, his life was never the same. That Roman soldier was transformed. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. We're told, according to Mark, what Jesus does next is he goes into the city of Capernaum, but because it is a Sabbath, he goes into uh, the synagogue to worship. Jesus did not forsake worship on the Sabbath. And so he went in, and true to fashion, he begins to teach. And in the midst of his message, he is interrupted by a demon-possessed man, and he Cast the demon out of the man. That man on that day in that church service encountered Jesus for the first time and he was transformed, released by the power of those demons and his life was never the same. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. Following that, because it was the Sabbath, he went to observe the Sabbath, observe the meal and he went to Simon Peter and Andrew's home. And upon arriving, we learned a few Sundays ago that Simon Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And Jesus walked into the room and he laid hands on her and lifted her up from her infirmities and she was healed of her disease. And that encounter in that room on that Sabbath changed her forever. It transformed her illness and she was made whole. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. That evening after the Passover was over, the townspeople in Capernaum gathered at Simon Peter and Andrew's home in droves. The crowd quickly became a mob, and there were people, as Matthew describes, who were oppressed by demons, and there were various different diseases, and Jesus heals everyone of all of their disease, and he casts out many demons, and that multitude, that crowd, those people who encountered Jesus on that service time in the courtyard in Matthew's home were forever transformed, and they were changed. They were never the same after that encounter with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. Following that, Jesus was a little bit concerned that they were becoming a mob, and he invites his disciples to get into a boat, and they travel southeast 
on the Sea of Galilee, and as soon as they get to the shore, they step off of the dock and onto the shore, and we learn how they are encountering then. He and the disciples encounter two men who are demon-possessed, and they quickly begin to identify Jesus as the Son of God. And in the exchange, Jesus casts out the demons, multiple, many demons, out of the two men. And because of that encounter, their lives are transformed. The demons were cast out, and they are saved. And from that moment on, their lives were never the same. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. Last week, Pastor Mike preached a great message. I've heard it. About Matthew 9, where Jesus, following that, is in Simon Peter and Andrew's home again, and the crowd is so large that four men cannot get their buddy in to see Jesus, so they lower him through the roof, and Jesus looks at the man who's being lowered through the roof, and he says to him, your sins are forgiven. He addresses the man's spiritual need first, and he forgives him of his sin, and then he heals him of his physical needs. And that encounter with Jesus on that day changed and transformed that man's life. From that point on, he was never the same. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 today in our text gives us his personal testimony in which he encounters Jesus possibly for the very first time in a personal way. Way. Undoubtedly, he knew who Jesus was. Maybe, possibly, he had sat under Jesus' teaching from time to time. He more than likely had heard about Christ being in Capernaum and near the area. He had not received any kind of invitation until this moment. And on this moment, in this time, in Matthew's life, he shares for us his personal testimony. And from this encounter, on this day, his life is forever transformed and he is never the same from this encounter and beyond. Why? Because Jesus changes everything in Matthew's life. Everything. His life is never the same. And when you and I came to faith in Christ and we encountered him on a personal level and we, like Matthew, received a call and we committed our lives to faith in Jesus and he breathed new life into us, from that moment on, we are never the same. Our lives are transformed. We are transformed from the sin of the old life into a life of newness. And I hope and pray you know what it means to be able to say, once I met Jesus and on that day when I met Jesus, my life has never been the same. For he changes everything. And you cannot stay the same once you encounter Jesus on a personal level. And so I want to go to the testimony of Matthew as he records his own personal testimony in his narrative of the gospel. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we are going to discover that there are three characteristics that happen in the life of Matthew that help us understand how his life was never the same. First of all, this authentic life change that happened to Matthew transcends over to the fact that Matthew surrendered himself unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. He surrenders unconditionally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For that is, in fact, where life transformation begins for us today. We must completely surrender to the Lordship of Jesus unconditionally. And once we do that, our lives will never be the same. Let's look at verse 9 as he records his own personal testimony. Notice the reach of the Savior. 
the reach of Christ to seek out Matthew where he was. He knows who he is, he knows where he is, and he knows what he's doing. And he's got a purpose and a plan for Matthew. In verse 9, and Jesus passed on from there. Christ is on a mission. He's not haphazardly just walking around hoping to encounter someone. He's on a mission. He knows exactly where Matthew is. He knows exactly what he is doing. He knows exactly what he's going to invite him to do. And he is intentionally headed in that direction to seek him out, to invite him to follow him. There was a time and a moment in your life. I hope you understand this. Where Jesus, knowing who you are and where you were and what you were doing, he intentionally purposefully sought you out to call you unto himself. That's what Jesus is doing here with Matthew. It says, and Jesus passed on from there. Notice what happens. He then, Jesus, saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Jesus is on a mission. Why is he on a mission? He's motivated here by two things. We learn in the text that what motivates Christ, I think, in this text, if you look at it, is first of all, his Social rejection. Matthew is is socially a reject. I mean, he's a tax collector of all things to be in a profession. That's worse than a banker, Brother David. Just kidding. He's a tax collector. Some of you on April 15th are going to be dreading that day. But Matthew is a tax collector, and he has a booth. And he's sitting some strategic place where there's a lot of commerce and a lot of people passing back and forth in and out of the city, maybe by the sea or maybe on the outskirts of a Capernaum on a very traveled road. He's a smart fellow. He wants to make sure that he assesses what they have got to sell or what they have purchased so that he can then tax them on their product. We came through, uh, you know, went to Canada, and you got to fill out one of those things. What are you bringing into the country? And I don't know about you, but have you ever sent anything to Canada via the mail? They will put a tax on what you pay taxes here if you send it to Canada. We're sending gift cards from now on, by the way, because they can't tax a gift card. I had to pay 26 bucks for things I sent for Christmas because of taxes from Canada. They love to tax you. Matthew worked for the Roman government, and they love to tax, especially the Jews. And he was a traitor to his own people. And not only was he a traitor to his own people and enforced the taxes of a Roman government, but he was allowed to tax more than what the government asked for so that then he could keep the rest, the remaining part, for himself. He was a wealthy, he was a rich man, he was despised, he was a social reject. When he went to the store, no one talked to him. When he went to the town square, no one wanted to hang out with him. When he sat in church, he sat alone. Nobody liked him. He was never invited to the party, never to weddings. And we showed up at funerals, people wondered, why are you here? He was a social outcast and a reject. And Jesus, knowing that, wanted to invite him to be a part of the inner circle, part of one of the 12 disciples. It, it didn't matter to Jesus what the society said about him, nor does he care about what society says about you when he wants to seek you out and call you unto himself. And you may be a social reject. It doesn't matter to Christ. He sought Matthew out and he'll seek you out. But he was also not only a social reject, but notice his spiritual condition. Matthew describes himself as a man. Now, you may read that quickly by and not think much about that because Matthew, a man's name, obviously he's a man. But Ma- Matthew tells us a lot about the fact that he's a man. That's saying he's a human being. 
And as a man, he has a carnal nature. He has an Adamic nature. You see, Matthew was well aware of his humanity. And because of his humanity, the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, like Matthew, have the same thing in common. We are sinners. By nature, we are born sinners. It's hard to believe that, that this young grandson of mine, seven weeks old, is a sinner. We're born with an Adamic nature, with a proneness to sin. And Matthew is revealing the fact that he is a man, he is a sinner in need of a Savior. Not only did his church remind him of that, not only did the religious elite remind him of that, but every day when he looked in the mirror, he recognized and realized his sin before a righteous God and his need for a Savior. I don't care what your condition is today. We all, like Matthew, are sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus gives him a very... Very, very short invitation in this message. He says, Matthew, follow me. Just two words, follow me. It's very simple, isn't it? Just follow me. That's all, follow me. That's a, maybe just a, a very short invitation, but it has a lot of impact. There is strategy in this invitation. Jesus is inviting him to step away and to walk away from his life of sin and his old life and follow him in the newness of life to recognize his sin, to repent of that sin, and to follow him as Lord and Savior of his life. That's the invitation that he extends to Matthew. That's the invitation that he extended to all of us and every one of us. And what was Matthew's response? It's unusual that he records his response for us. It's a very simple response. Notice he says in the remainder part of verse 9, And he, I, Matthew, rose and followed him. And he, Matthew, or I, rose and followed him. He responded appropriately. And we notice in the text that he admits his sin. We've already identified that in his testimony. I was a man. I'm named Matthew. I recognize and realize I'm not only a social reject, but I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I admit my sin. You and I, like Matthew, must admit that we are sinners in order to receive Christ. Not only did he admit his sin, but you take a look, he rose. He abandoned his old lifestyle. He got up from where he was under the power of the call of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. He rose from that old life into the newness of life. He walked away from the old life. We learn, according to Mark's testimony and record of what happened to Matthew, that he left the money, he left everything there. I mean, when you think about it, why would you become a tax collector? Because you're greedy. You want to be wealthy. And not, isn't that not what our culture says that we must all seek is wealth, financial prosperity? When Matthew sought financial prosperity. He was a wealthy man. He was a tax collector because it was a place where he could become wealthy. And when he got up, he rose up. He left everything there. All that he had spent his life to accumulate and all of the taxes and all the resources and all the financial gain that he had, he walked away from that table and he left it there. Incredible to me that he just rose up and he walked away and it says he followed Christ. He answered the call. He followed Jesus. He abandoned everything and he answered the call and he committed his heart and his life to Christ. But Matthew doesn't stop there. Notice what he says in verse 10 in the first part of the verse. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. We see finally 
that Matthew is affirming the lordship of Jesus in his life. Well, where do you get that? Well, if you take a look at the text, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, whose house, we learn in Luke and in, and in Mark that Matthew invites Jesus to his home. You see, his faith isn't just something that's disconnected from his family and from his personal life. His faith became a part of even his personal life. It became a part of his family. He was letting Jesus inside on the most intimate, personal things in his life. There were no restrictions. There were no boundaries. There were no limitations. He invites Jesus into his personal life to wreak havoc on everything possible. It's like inviting him into your house and saying, all the rooms of my heart are open. Have your way in any one of these aspects of my life. You are Lord of all. He invited Jesus to be Lord in his personal life, but he also invited Jesus to be Lord in his public life. You see, he wasn't afraid to bring Jesus into his home, and I think some of us sometimes are afraid to bring Christ into our homes because the reality is that living for Jesus in our home is harder than we want to admit because who knows you the best than those in your home? I mean, you come in here on Sunday morning and sing to Jesus and bring your big Bible and answer all the questions and even teach a life group lesson, but if you don't live it at home, man, they know Jesus isn't Lord. And yet he's willing to invite Jesus into his home. But he's, in, he's willing to invite Jesus into his public life as well. He invites his friends to his home for the purpose of meeting Jesus. You see, he didn't discard his old relationships and his old friendships. But he stopped doing what he was doing with his old friends. And Jesus was with him. This is really huge, I think, for us, and sometimes we neglect to look at this reality in this man's life and our lives because Jesus not only invades our personal lives but also our public lives. He must be Lord of our friendships. He must be Lord of the things we do with our friends. You see, when Matthew invited Jesus into his home and invited his, 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 his co-workers who were tax collectors and prostitutes and adulterers and alcoholics into his house, he wasn't involved in that anymore, and yet he invited them in, and he made Jesus Lord of his life in his relationships. He no longer was involved in that activity, yet he wanted to invite his friends to get to know Christ, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But there is a distinction, a clear difference in a surrendered life that is surrendered unconditionally, how we, after we meet Jesus, relate to our coworkers and our friends. You see, Matthew was saying, you're in the Lord not only in my personal life, but you're going to be Lord in all of my friendships, in all my business dealings, in all and every aspect of my life from here on out. It was an unconditional, complete, total, unrestricted surrender to Christ. Where Jesus became Lord. Characteristic number one. Number two is that he served the mission of Christ. For Christ was on a mission, and our mission is to redeem lost sinners unto himself. And as soon as Matthew was transformed by the power of Christ and this interaction with him, he joined Jesus on the mission of saving lost souls. You know, it really bothers me when there are people who come to faith in Christ and they have no concern for lost people. They have no concern for lostness. 
When Matthew was transformed by the person of Jesus and the power of his transformational work and the fact that his life was never the same, he took on different concerns. Well, how do you know that? Look at the last part of verse 10. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were, what were they doing? They were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They were, they were with Christ and with Matthew in his home. Where are they? They're in his home. And he invited these people into his home. These are the, the prostitutes. They're the adulterers. They're the alcoholics. They're the thieves and the robbers and, and all of these degenerate depraved people. He invites them, these social outcasts, into his home for the purpose of meeting Jesus. He's throwing a party. He is celebrating the newness of life that he found in Jesus. And in celebrating this new life that he found in Christ, he wanted all his degenerate friends to celebrate his new life and to meet his Jesus. That was his first reaction to coming to faith in Christ was to share what he had found with his lost friends because his lost friends like him, they knew they were sinners and yet they had never had a personal encounter with Christ and he was going to do everything possible in his means using his resources to throw a party, to invite them to come for the purpose of meeting Jesus so that their lives like his could be transformed so that once they've met Jesus, their lives will never be the same. He wanted them to know that transformational power through an encounter with Christ. And he had a concern for his lost neighbors, his friends, and his family. And he wanted to introduce them to Jesus. Do you have that concern? Do you really? Are we burdened with the lostness around us in Wichita? Are you burdened for your coworkers? Are you concerned about the eternal fate of those who live in the city of Wichita, those who live in Kansas, those who live in the U.S., and even those who live in the world? Jesus says, go you into all the world. We have and should have a concern for the globalization of the gospel of Jesus to go forth. I heard Aaron describe this week to some people from Fort Smith, Arkansas, his mission field in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Three and a half million people Less than 5% evangelical Christians. Less than 5% evangelical Christians. 3.5 million people. I have yet to be in a city that I'm convinced is that dark and that lost. And he said he's, it's like going fishing. And this, the, the, the lake that he's fishing in is a large lake and there are a lot of fish. And he just casts his line out not knowing which fish is going to bite the bait. And he's going to reel them in for the glory of God. Didn't Jesus call his disciples to become what? Fishers of men. The first thing he said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. How many people have you led to faith in Christ outside of your own family? How many? One? Two? How many lost friends and neighbors and coworkers do you have and do you know? And if you don't share with them, whose responsibility is it? We have a hard time as a pastoral staff just getting people to invite, to get you to invite people to church. Much less share your testimony 
and to tell them, you know, I met Jesus one day and my life was never the same. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. He did for me and he can for you. Matthew had a burden and had a concern for the lostness of his friends, his family, his co-workers. But notice they're the critics. There are the critics, and there always are the critics, who are disgusted with Matthew's concern for the lost. Because, you see, they're not concerned about lost people. All they're concerned about is their traditions and their likes and their practices. Well, that ain't the way we did it before. You're not doing it like we've done it then. Notice what happens in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They saw what Jesus was doing. When did, and where did they see this? They were not in the party. They would have never been in this party. Why? They were too good to be in this party. They were the self-righteous, hypocrite Pharisees. They would have never dared to walk into this party because those people in there were sinners. And, and if I associate with them, I'm going to get dirty. Because, you see, when you associate with sinners, it's a dirty business. And they were afraid that something might rub off and they might become sinners. They were righteous. And so they looked at a distance they saw probably from the street through the courtyard into, the, into the, 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 the window there. They could see Jesus reclining at the table with these prostitutes and these alcoholics and these adulterers, these non-church people who don't have the practices and the traditions that they're observing. And they come to, to the disciples. Notice they approached the disciples. They didn't have the nerve to come to Jesus. They weren't going to walk into that room. There were sinners in there, so they caught one of the disciples probably out in the courtyard or maybe out in the street, and they say to the disciples, I think they were a little bit afraid of Jesus as well because they didn't want to confront Jesus. They knew that that probably wouldn't go well, so they talked to one of the disciples. It's kind of like whenever you're mad at me, you talk to the chairman of deacons. You know. And so notice what they speak or what they say. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors, and sinners. They're critical of Jesus and his disciples. There's a critical spirit here because they're angry that Jesus is actually associating with these social derelicts and they're condemning those sinners. They're not casting a line of hope. They're not helping them recognize and realize that if you know you're a sinner, there's hope for you. They just wrote them off. They're not going to associate with them. They're beyond hope. They're not practicing like we practice. They don't go to church every Sunday morning. They don't carry their big King James. and They don't say lofty prayers. And notice Jesus corrects them in verse 12. But when he heard it, he said. How did he hear it? Well, he's in with the sinners and the prostitutes and the adulterers and the alcoholics. How did he hear it? We don't know. Maybe somebody came back and squealed on the Pharisees out there. Maybe he heard it at a distance. Maybe in his sovereignty he understood the conversations that were going on. We do know that he heard the conversation or he knew what was going on. But more importantly than that, he knows their hearts. He not only knew what they were speaking, but he knew that 
that attitude that caused them to speak these critical and condemning words. Their hearts were far from God, and when he heard it, he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who have, let's look at it again, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Who needs a physician? Those who are sick. You ever been sick? You couldn't heal yourself, so what'd you do? You called the doctor and you went to the physician. Why? To get some meds <laughs> so you could feel better. You went to someone who could help you. And he's saying to these self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees, he's saying, it's the sick, those who know that they're sinners. They know that they're sinners. They know they have a disease of sin. They are the ones who are seeking a Savior. And that's why I've come. They're looking for a great physician who can heal them of their disease called sin. You, on the other hand, you self-righteous hypocrites, you believe that you're well, but in reality, you are sick. You are a sinner, and you need a Savior, but you're too blind and too ignorant to recognize it, to admit it, and to seek me as your great physician. That's what he's saying. They're self-righteous hypocrites. They don't need a Savior. And notice then what he says in verse 12. But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's Hosea 6.6. 6. He's quoting a verse out of the Old Testament. He's saying, you biblical scholars, you claim to be theologians, you claim to have gone to seminary, you claim to have spent your lifetime reading and interpreting and understanding Scripture, I want you to go back to school, Jack. You've missed it. You need to go back and read this passage here in the Old Testament. And when you read this passage in the Old Testament, you come up with the right understanding of what God intended to say in this passage. You will recognize and realize that you are a sinner. You will be convicted of your sin. Why? Because it is the Word of God that convicts us of sin. Romans 3.23 says, All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How am I going to know when I'm a sinner if, 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 I, if I don't go to the Word? Because the Word reveals my sin, it convicts me of my sin. And once I am convicted of my sin, he's saying to them, you will then confess your sin. You will recognize you who believe to be righteous are self-righteous. You have violated the standard of God. And that, that fact that you recognize that you violated the standard of God will convict you of sin. And once you're convicted of sin, you must then confess your sin, repent of that sin in order to be saved. They couldn't be saved because they wouldn't they wouldn't admit that they were sinners and they would not repent of their sin because they believed themselves to be righteous when in fact they weren't righteous, they were anything but righteous. And notice the last part of what he says to them, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. For I came not to call the righteous, those who believe that they are righteous, those who believe that they aren't sinners, those who believe that they're above recognition of their sin and believe that they are perfect, that they are spotless. But I have come to save sinners. But I like what Luke says in Luke 5.23 as he records this, not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Mark and Luke 
sort of add something that Matthew takes for granted because sinners must repent of their sin in order to be forgiven and to be saved. For without repentance, there is no salvation. And these guys were not going to repent. We see here in this text that while these self-righteous religious elite hypocrites didn't give a flip about the sinners, this brand new Christ follower, this disciple who's been transformed by the very grace of God that he's received when he followed Jesus is now wanting to extend that same grace to everyone he knows. I'm convinced that's, the, that's a characteristic of an authentic life change. You want others to experience the same joy that you have, to know the same Savior that you know, and to go in the same place you're going to go after death or when Christ returns. And there is a burden, there is a passion, there is a concern, not a condemnation and not a criticism, but a desire to introduce them to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. Matthew knew that if Jesus could change his life, he could change his friend's life. And I think maybe one of the problems that we have with sinners out there in the world, we sometimes sort of, sort of masquerade our, our sin, thinking that we weren't really that bad of sinners. You know, we were, we were light sinners. And when we came to faith in Jesus, we were light sinners. And these people are heavy sinners, so they're beyond God's grace. There's no one beyond God's grace. And you weren't a light sinner before you were saved. I don't care if you were saved at seven years old. You were wicked. You were self-centered, egotistical. You believed that the world revolved around you, and you were the center of the universe at seven years old. How do you know that? I was a father of three children. I know. And as beautiful as our eight grandchildren are, they're depraved, and they're sinners in need of a Savior, just like you and me are in need of a Savior. Last characteristic is that he seeks exclusivity, and we're going to close very quickly with this. There's an exclusivity here in Matthew's account where we see that, that now the disciples of John the Baptist are going to come. Jesus is still in Simon Peter and Andrew's home, and maybe the festivities are over and the people have dispersed, but now John the Baptist, uh, his disciples have come. At this particular point in Jesus' ministry, we understand, according to Matthew, that John the Baptist has been arrested. He's in prison. And uh, if you recall in John's gospel, chapter 1, Jesus points to his disciples who were there, look, the Lamb of God. And he points his disciples to Jesus, for John was the forerunner of the Christ. And it was his objective, it was his purpose, it was his mission given to him by God to be the forerunner, to set the stage for Jesus. And when Jesus came on the scene, it was John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I must decrease. And I'm convinced when John was arrested, he sent his disciples to go follow the Messiah, to go follow Jesus. Some of them did. Andrew was the first, and after he found Christ, he went and got his brother, Simon Peter, who also did. And all of them, according to John, should have followed Jesus, but some did not. That doesn't surprise me. 
And I'm convinced that these disciples of John the Baptist, as we read this narrative, are in mourning because their leader has been arrested and they are in mourning and they are fasting for his release. They are beseeching God day and night for their their leader to be released and for John to be let go and for him not to be killed for his belief and his stance against the king. And so they come then to Jesus, probably just as soon as the festivity was over. And then the disciples of John come to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Now, don't mistake the fact that they're trying to compare themselves to the Pharisees because John the Baptist and the Pharisees have nothing in common. (laughs) They really don't. They're just trying to sort of validate their case. And they're saying to Jesus and really to his disciples, they're saying to Jesus, why don't your disciples, they're not really pointing the finger at Jesus, but they're saying, why don't your disciples fast? There's only one prescribed fast in Leviticus 16, and that is the fast on the Day of Atonement. That's the only fast prescribed and ordained by God, the only commandment. There are passages about fasting, but there's only one commandment in Leviticus 16 to fast. There was a tradition, though, in which they would fast two days a week. It was not ordained by law. God's Word didn't tell them to do that. But somewhere, someone decided we should discipline ourselves and self-sacrifice ourselves, and two days a week we should fast. And the really elite, the really disciplined, the really devoted disciples of God, the ones who really love Yahweh, they'll fast twice a week with us. And if you didn't fast twice a week, you were, you were considered an inferior God follower. You didn't live up to our standard. It was tradition, not biblical, but it was tradition. I think we need to be really, really careful how we judge each other's behaviors and how they reflect their Christianity and make sure that what we evaluate in how they live their lives is actually biblical and not tradition or religion. Because the Pharisees in Jesus' day were doing nothing and everything but God's word. And they were doing so many traditions that had nothing to do with what God ordained or God declared. And so they went, why aren't your disciples fasting? Jesus says in verse 15, notice his explanation after the exchange. Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? The days are come when the bridegroom is taken away and then, uh, taken away from them, and then they will fast. Notice Jesus in his explanation says, guys, you need to focus on the bridegroom. I am the bridegroom. And as the bridegroom, I am present with my disciples. The groom is getting ready for the wedding feast, and he is present with his disciples. This is not the time of mourning. He's comparing himself to the bridegroom. And in the day in which this passage and this exchange was given, a a wedding would celebrate seven days, a whole week before the wedding day. There would be a huge celebration, a huge, it was expensive. And during this time, they would celebrate seven days. Of celebration. And Jesus is saying, look, we're in that week of celebration, and I as a bridegroom and with my disciples, this is a time to celebrate because I'm with my disciples. We're celebrating. The bridegroom is here, and he's getting ready for the wedding day. We need to focus on the fact that I'm here, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and we're to celebrate that. But notice then the future that he describes. One day there will come a time in which my disciples will fast. 
When will they fast? It says here, when the bridegroom is taken away. That word taken away means snatched up. Jesus is referencing not only his crucifixion, but his ascension. One of these days, I will die. I will be crucified. I will be put in a tomb, and I will rise from the dead, and then I will ascend to the Father, and I will be taken away. And that is the time in which my disciples will mourn their loss, and they will fast. That will happen. It's a prediction. It's futuristic. And he gives two examples to the, to, the, to the disciples of John, verse 16 and verse 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is the new wine put in the old wineskins. If it is that wineskins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins were destroyed... But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The unshrunk cloth is one of his illustrations. Most of the cloth back then was made of either wool or linen. And if you took a piece of wool or linen and patched a piece of cloth that was torn, and then it got dirty and you washed it, that piece of linen would shrink, and what would happen to the repair? I mean, you'd have something like this, and it would not be well. And Jesus said, no, you don't put the new with the old. And then he gave another illustration about wineskin. Now, I know most of us are, have been raised Baptists most of our lives, and this is sort of uncomfortable just to mention the word wine. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's in the Bible, it's okay. Come on. It's okay, Baptist, to talk about wine in church because it's biblical, it's in, it's in the Bible. But the deal here is they would take the, the part of a, a lambskin off, they would cut it up and then just kind of peel it out and it would make kind of a, 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 a pouch made out of skin and they would tie one end and then pour the wine into it and then tie the other for fermentation. And as the wine would ferment, it would then stretch the wine skin out and over time, that wine skin would get sort of crusty or it would, the word I'm looking for is um, brittle. And it would get brittle. And so the idea is you would not then put new wine into an old brittle wineskin because as it ferments, it would stretch then that, that wineskin, that, that used container, and it would then split and you would lose then the wine. So what is Jesus saying? You don't mix your old traditions with the newness of life that I came to give. Now, there have been some who have tried to suggest that Jesus is saying in this passage, we don't have to practice our faith at all. Because now we're in a new era where there are no laws, there are no commandments, there are no boundaries. We're free to live and eat and do and Whatever, all that, you know, you can't put the old into the new. That's not what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees or to these, these, uh, these disciples of John. What he's saying to them is this. You don't take a salvation by law and mix it with a salvation by grace through faith. Because salvation is by grace through faith in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of of God. You can't be saved by keeping the Old Testament law. You can't be saved in your own righteousness. 
They were putting their st- everything, lock, stock, and barrel, in their own salvation based upon their own righteousness. And Jesus is saying, you can't take that and put it with what I'm offering. They don't mix. So, don't follow the traditions of man. Follow, seek exclusively the directions of Christ in his word. Make sure that you're following Jesus and Jesus exclusively. Because if we're not careful, we have a tendency to follow man, to follow traditions, or even to follow our religion. Rather than go to the word and seek out God's direction and Jesus' purpose and intent for our life. And he's saying to his disciples and to us today, seek me exclusively and follow me alone. So the question is, how authentic is your faith? Have you surrendered unconditionally? Without reservation? Without limitations? Without boundaries? A total 100% yes to him. You have risen up from your old life and you have embraced the newness of life and you are now following in the footsteps of Jesus. Unconditional surrender. That's what he requires. And I'm convinced that is one of the true marks of an authentic Christ follower. We must then serve on the missional activity with Jesus. We are on mission with him. The last words he said to his disciples in the last chapter of Matthew, he said, go into all the world and make disciples. And if we are true disciples of Christ, then we, like Jesus, then are today on a mission to redeem a lost world unto faith in Christ and to make disciples as we seek exclusively and solely not to follow the traditions of man or the traditions of our past or even the traditions of our denomination, but to follow exclusively in the footsteps of Jesus, making him the Lord of our life. Let's pray. song inside my heart.